Welcome to the Mike Smith Show podcast. This is your one-stop shop for all the latest happenings in BC. From breaking news and developing stories to giving the big headlines a closer look, the Mike Smith Show is here to keep you dialed in and up to date. Let's begin. Once again, Rob Faye filling in for Mike. Happy Friday. Happy long weekend. I think there's a lot of people that are trying to get out of Dodge today because, of course, Monday is stat holiday, so maybe you can make it a four-day weekend. And if you're already on the road... I say good on you. I would imagine that most people probably getting on the road after they pick up their kids from school. I think that's important. You're halfway to, you know, Kamloops. You're like, ah, we forgot our kids in school. Got to go back and get them. (laughs) Well, I'll tell you what, speaking of young Canadians, great segue, by the way. Speaking of young Canadians, we are talking about rising costs. You know, since 2021, that the average rent costs in Canada have increased more than 20%. 20 percent and a lot of young canadians my daughter even had this conversation with me the other day saying that they were looking at options in calgary her and her boyfriend were looking at options in calgary boo hiss but at the same time young canadians have a lot of decisions to make let's talk to emily gardner she's the head of personal lending at spring financial emily good morning morning mike thanks very much for having me on the show well no problem here's the first thing that i wanted to ask right out of the gates is did you ever imagine that there would be a time in canada where a teenager or somebody in their early 20s would have to think about leaving our province because it's just too daggone expensive definitely not i think uh when you're growing up you think of this dream of buying your own home living close to your families and in in the area that you always grew up in um, and now with the increase in rental costs and then the increases in, in buying your average day home as well, it's just kind of unaffordable for your average day Canadian at, at this point in time. You know, we talk about the evolving financial climate in Canada and why it's pushing Canadians, but how are they adapting to their lifestyle to make these ends meet? What are they doing in your estimation? Absolutely. So some things that we're seeing at Spring Financial with our customers is that with the increased costs of especially shelter and uh, general living expenses, people are having to rely on things like cash advances from credit cards, um, buy now, pay later services, or even payday loan, uh, payday loan services as well, which can have interest rates up in the, up in the hundreds, which is just insane. I think to myself, when I got my first credit card, it was an Eaton's card. I'm going to date myself a little bit. And they gave me a $1,000 credit limit. And I maxed it out within weeks because I was just so excited that it had that, quote, free money. How educated do you think this generation of Canadians are, speaking of these young Canadians are, to just the perils of credit and the fact that, you know what, it's not just a piece of plastic, that that actually represents real money? Absolutely. I do think that the, this generation, the younger generation, does have an, a slight advantage on some of the older generations with having um, tech at their fingertips. And so they can actually research things quite easily. Social media, there can be good information and also bad information on the Internet. Um, so I think in some ways they're at an advantage with being able to get information on how to use credit. Um, but also there's depending on what they're researching, it can also be misinformation as well. You beat me to it. I was going to say there's a lot of opinion. There's a lot of, quote, misinformation out there. I just think the one thing that I I try to tell my kids, and correct me if I'm wrong on this, but we, we hear a lot of the advertisements. We hear a lot of the this is what credit can do for you. But do you think Canadians research their credit? Do you think they research their borrowers enough? And if they don't, what could they do to maybe make better decisions? Absolutely. I think there's still um, it, there's still a myth when it comes to understanding all of their options. Um, I, I think a perfect example is taking a cash advance. Um, 
from someone's credit card is as soon as you take a cash advance from a credit card, the interest starts accruing right away, right? And a lot of people don't even don't understand that. It can also have impacts on on future borrowing capacities as well, because lenders do look at those kinds of things when they want to go lend to you. Um, there are a lot of great options out there, uh, including lower interest personal loans that can give you upfront cash uh, in a moment where you might not have the funds available to you immediately. Um, it kind of solves that, bridges that gap and gives you funds now um, with payments that you can actually afford that's not going to chew into your ability to save and invest and things like that. Emily Gardner is the head of personal lending at Spring Financial here on the Mike Smith Show. Emily, I want to delve into that just a little bit more. The you know mm-hmm. implementation of a proper loan agreement. I mean, to me, this is a well-drafted loan agreement. It's essential for both parties when you think about it, but it should really clearly outline the terms and conditions of the loan, including, like you mentioned, repayment schedules, interest rates, any additional fees or penalties, just to make sure that there's clarity on both sides. Absolutely. And it's very important that you are reading uh, when you are entering any kind of financial agreement that you are reading the loan documents and you understand exactly what's going on, what kind of interest rates you're, you're getting, what kind of payments are expected of you. Um, things like, uh, is, it, is it an open loan? Can you make additional payments without any fees, penalties? Um, perks like that are also advantageous when it comes to making making borrowing decisions. So one of the challenges that I think young Canadians are facing is sometimes they don't qualify for a lender. And a lot of times in that essence, they go back to their parents and look for a co-signer or somebody that can kind of help make sure that they can get that across the finish line. I'm sure that you've seen almost everything in your travels over the years in your industry, but what are some of the perils of maybe uh, a parent getting into uh, an agreement where they're a third party, but at the end of the day, they're still on the hook? Absolutely. I think it's a misconception is, oh, I'm just co-signing. It's not really my, my responsibility. Um, if you are a co-signer on a loan, it is 100% your responsibility, um, just as much as the main applicant. So it not only uh, if the main applicant defaults on the loan, um, you're expected to pay for it. But if you are wanting to purchase a car in the future, things like that, any co-signed loan that you, you've signed for does have an impact on your debt income ratio, um, overall so and usually it will be 100% of that payment even if you're not paying it at all so if you're wanting to remortgage or buy a new home or get a new car in the future really think about is it the right decision for me to be a co-borrower in that instance and I also think there's a bit of a responsibility from the institution you know for example I know you guys over at Spring Financial take this into consideration making sure that it's the right loan because you don't just give out money just because there's got to be the right situation and it's got to feel good for both sides if you're going to make that deal would that be fair? Absolutely. I think at the end of the day, giving a payment that that a customer can't afford doesn't help them, and it also doesn't help uh, doesn't help us either. So it's important to find something that really fits within each individual person's budget, and no budget is the, no two budgets are the same. Um, so at Spring Financial, we do try to do our best to find something that really works within your unique situation. I love it. Well, you know, it's not always the easiest conversation to have, but thank you for the insight today, Emily. It was a pleasure to have you on, and let's do this again soon. Thanks so much, Mike. You know, it's it's a really simple question, and I asked it just before we went to the break. Do landlords get a bum rap, an unfair rap when it comes to, you know, how they handle tenants and, you know, the ways that they are? There's always that stigma that comes with being a, quote, landlord. 
And I thought it'd be cool if we brought Al Kemp on. He's a residential landlord, has been for more than 20 years, and CEO of the former Rental Owners and Managers Society of BC. Al, good morning. Good morning. Well, let's get to this because, you know, one of the challenges is we talk about the struggles for affordability and availability, but I think there's some landlords out there that feel like they're both unprotected and maybe even unappreciated. Well, you know, I, I've often said if we took the word landlord and could magically remove it from our language and replaced it with rental housing provider, that's far too many syllables, of course, nowadays, <laughs> but it would change the whole picture. Um, we are in business, of course, but we're in the business of providing homes for British Columbians. As a matter of fact, homes for about 35% of British Columbians. And, you know, like a lot of other businesses or industries, you don't read about the bank that wasn't robbed. You don't read about the good guys. Uh, the media looks to look at, looks to look at the, likes to look at the bad guys. <coughs> Excuse me. So, yes, are there uh, scofflaw landlords in our industry? Yes. Um, are there scofflaw doctors, lawyers, uh, truck drivers, uh, pick an industry? Yes. Are they in the majority? No. Are they about 2 or 3%? And, and I think that would be a fair answer with respect to almost any business, and, and our business included. But, you know, I, I always like to come back to the fact that, you know, really, we're in the service industry. We're in the service business. We provide services called homes and then maintain those homes for, for uh, rental, housing, rental housing people all over the province. You know, one of the misconceptions is maybe landlords are, quote, only interested in money. In money. And, and, and there's no doubt about it. As you mentioned, running a business and trying to make a little bit of rental income to help offset some of their own expenses. But there's also, you know, a commitment to maintaining a good landlord-tenant relationship. And it's vital, I think, in my estimation, for the success of the business. So my question to you based on that, Al, is should there be a capped rental increase limit so that there is no assumption that they're just trying to gouge their tenants for money? Well, we have that capped increase limit. We've had it for, uh, well, many years, but uh, a specific rent control formula since 2004. And and it's interesting you raise that, you know. Um, landlords are people. They eat, they buy clothes, they send their kids to school, they plan for their pensions, um, whether individuals or people that are working for larger companies. And the average um, rent control limit over the past five years, up uh, up to 2023, has been 2%. Um, I would defy anybody to find an inflation indicator that says uh, inflation has been 2% per year for the last five years. You couldn't. But you know what? It goes back to my question, and I appreciate you correcting me on that, because I didn't know that. And I think there's probably a lot of tenants that don't know that either. So maybe that's a part of the stigma is just the lack of uh, education when it comes to something that, from a landlord's perspective, has already been in place for years. Um, I think most uh, most renters are aware of rent controls. Um, the government requires landlords to issue a notice of rent increase on a government form. No, no more often than once every 12 months, and it has to be issued three months in advance of the increase coming into effect. So, um, yeah, I think, uh, I think tenants are aware of it. What we're hearing nowadays, though, is that, you know, rents are going up 10%, 12%, 14%. It's interesting to dive into that. So, yes, th- those are probably accurate statistics. The, uh, there's two parts of the market. Existing tenants 
existing tenancies. They've lived there for a year or 20 years and new tenancies. There's no rent controls on new tenancies, but because we've been way below inflation, I mean, we have to pay uh, property taxes up 7% and I could go on to a long list. Everything's over 2%. So the only way that we can try to, you know, achieve a reasonable bottom line because our existing tenants' rents are way below market, then when there's a new tenancy, there's no rent controls between tenancies. Hmm. When there's a new tenancy, we have to raise the rent more than we would otherwise if we could achieve a reasonable increase with existing tenancies. The turnover um, is probably in the area of maybe 20%, 20%, and, and I'm guessing at this, but 20 to 25% of rental units turn over each year. Um, and that's what's being measured, uh, you know, by those who want vacancy control and think that landlords only exist to become rich and more evil. You, I, I feel like I'm getting an education here, and I love that we're having this conversation because I think just even the understanding of, you know, being able to raise rent as an existing as opposed to a new, I think, you know, you mentioned that a lot of people know this, but I, I'm in the minority then. I had no clue that that was the way that the land laid. So I, I guess my final question for you, Alan, I do appreciate this. I got about 30 seconds. If you could just put your finger on one misconception of a landlord, what would it be? Um that landlords want their tenants to stay, the good ones. It costs us money um, to, uh, you know, replace a tenant and uh, get everything set and find a good tenant. So when we find good tenants, uh, we uh, we would like them to stay forever. And we only ask for three things. Pay the rent, act like a responsible adult, and take care of my property. And, you know, when you boil the Residential Tenancy Act of about 100 sections down, uh, that's the three expectations of tenants, and the good ones do that. I appreciate this conversation. Al, let's, ha- let's have more conversations. I need more education from guys like you, so please don't be a stranger. <laughs> Look forward to it anytime. You mean shrinkage? Yes! <laughs> Significant shrinkage. So you, you feel you were shortchanged? Yes! <laughs> Rob Fay, uh, yes, Seinfeld, one of the greatest episodes the shrinkage episode. I think they just called it something along those lines. You know, we were uh, scouring for the, you know, the heavy hitting news and we came across this story. Maybe not heavy hitting, but it is definitely something that I think a lot of us have uh, maybe noticed over the last couple of years when it comes to fast food and shrinkflation. Now, shrinkflation refers to the marketing technique that's pretty much used by, well, I shouldn't say all companies, but a majority of companies where they try to reduce the size or the quantity of a product while keeping the price same or maybe even in some instances increasing it. Now, it often goes unnoticed by you and I as the packaging, the overall appearance of the product is pretty much the same. But the aim of shrinkflation is for companies to maintain their profit margins without overtly increasing the prices. For example, you may notice the chocolate bar becoming slightly smaller, but yet still sold at the same price. It's always good to keep an eye on this when you're shopping. Tim Hortons back east is coming out saying, not us, because they've heard it from a lot of their customers. Timmy's firing back, claiming there is no so-called shrinkflation at play and arguing that their menu 
has not shrunk in any ways. 604-280-9898, star 9898 on your cell, or hit me up on the buzz line, 604-331-2899. Have you noticed shrinkflation in fast food chains? Maybe it's a chocolate bar or something along those lines. I'd love to hear from you. Let's go out to Mission. Lori's been waiting. Lori, good morning. Good morning. How are you? I'm okay, and I'm just wondering if I'm alone in this thought process that maybe things are getting a little bit smaller despite the fact I'm still paying the same. Well, you know, it's funny because it really has been going on for a couple of decades. We used to buy things by the dozen, and now they come in eights or sixes, right? You used to get a half a dozen granola bars in a box. Now you get five. You used to get, right? I mean, wieners come in packages of 10 instead of 12. So it's it's all there, and especially in potato chips, right? Used to be 66 for the ah. individual serving. Now it's down to 60. And one of the things when you're talking about how things increase in price and you're getting less, a lot of things that people purchase that are edible products, the tax that you pay depends on the weight of the product, and anything that weighs under 500 grams um, gets taxed differently because it falls in a different uh, food category. So anything that you used to get that was like 510 and it drops down to 485, you will now not only get less, but you'll pay more because you'll pay a tax on it as well. Lori, are you a professor in this field? <laughs> Uh, no, I'm just old and on a fixed income and have to really manage my money. I'm blown away by your knowledge of this. Thank you. Call back anytime because that was the best minute of this show. Thank you for it. Thank you. Have a great day. No problem. Wow. <laughs> you know, what's funny is it was just a casual conversation that uh, Corey and I were having before the show. Lori chimes in and just completely dunks on both of us with her knowledge, which is a good thing. But let's be honest, Corey, we, we were talking before the show. We both noticed this shrinkflation. Man, do we ever, and not to, the, not to the way Lori in Mission did. She really blew me away there with the stone-cold facts. Mine's just, you know, you go grocery shopping and you don't pay a ton of attention, or I don't pay a ton of attention to what I'm buying, but... The other day, I go to buy these cheese buns. I love them. They're the best cheese buns I've ever had. Come in a pack of six, about $5.50, $5.99, somewhere in there. I go the other day, same price, four buns. Ooh. Two whole buns gone. I'm paying more than a dollar a bun here. It's wild. And this isn't a oh, fancy yeah. store, Rob. Yeah. No, you're fair. Uh, I'm not going to d- deny that. You know what? For several months, Tim Horton's customers have been taking to social media. See, this to me is kind of the great equalizer and the fact that now, instead of it just being kind of myth and, oh, did you hear? People just take pictures of these items, hashtag it shrinkflation. And now a lot of these organizations are being called to the carpet. So Tim Hortons, because they had seen so many different people posting their merchandise with, you know, this is getting smaller. This is shrinkflation. They're trying to save a buck. They've come back and they said, "Uh uh-uh, man, like no shot. And several Timmy's customers have said it is noticeably smaller. It is significantly smaller. So who's telling the truth here? Because you know what? The proof is in the picture. This X user, it used to be Twitter. I guess, I'm going to call it Twitter X if that's okay. This one says, is it just me or is the Tim Hortons coffee size another victim of shrinkflation? The large coffee cup I was just handed doesn't look like the previous larges. 
<laughs> Look, man, if you're skipping on pennies for coffee, that's probably a problem. But I, I would think, you know, there are certain things at a supermarket for sure. It is getting smaller. Bread is, is a great example Corey brought up. Um, I think donuts are a little bit smaller. The bag of chips that Lori said, absolutely. The one thing that I have noticed for sure is chocolate bars. As the chubby guy at the station, I eat my share of chocolate bar. By the way, very quickly before we go to Chris here in Langley, we have this uh, honor system at the radio station where, you know, you pay your money and you get the chocolate bar. And every month you get your statement as to what you've eaten, you know, so that, it, you know, just to make sure that your visa statement comes back. Dude, I got my receipt for the month, like last month in August. I think 30% of what I ingested as a human was chocolate bars from the station. <sighs> anyway, and, and those felt regular size okay chris and langley save me where have you noticed shrinkflation <laughs> uh, a few different places actually you mentioned tim hortons uh, a few times now lately i've gone and getting a large coffee and and he feels a little uh light and you open it up and it's you know like three quarters of the, the way full i don't know if that was on purpose or um uh, not by accident but mm -hmm. uh, i was just gonna say that uh, i used to love these chewy chips ahoy cookies and i could eat a whole package at a sitting and uh and not only have they gotten quite a bit smaller, as you were saying, shrinkflation, but uh, quite a distinct taste difference to the point where, you know, they don't even taste the same and they're terrible. So, you know, the other side of it is, is cheaper ingredients, finding ways to substitute more expensive ingredients for cheaper ones and try to get the same outcome. But uh, in this case, they lost me because they're terrible compared to how they used to be. Chris, I'd imagine you sitting on one side of the couch eating your box of Chips Ahoy and me on the other side eating every chocolate bar that this station has to offer, and I think we'd have a grand old time. <laughs> Chris, thank you for the phone call. I do appreciate it. It is a really... Uh, important weekend as far as I'm concerned. I'll be back on the airwave 6 a.m. tomorrow morning to bring you our Truth and Reconciliation Day show. Uh, very special, near dear to my heart, and I know that this is a day where a lot of people are going to uh, have some, I, I guess, some thoughts on this, some looking into the mirror, wondering what this all means and how they can be a part of the change. To talk about this a little bit more, uh, Ellis Ross, former chief counselor, uh, and now a BC United MLA for Skeena. Ellis, thank you for joining me this morning. No problem, Rob. How are you doing? I I'm good. And you know what's interesting about this topic is I've been spending all week building this show that we're going to air tomorrow starting at 6 in the morning. And the one thing that I'm really trying just to make sure that I deliver properly is what is this day? What should it be all about? Ellis, what should it be all about? That is a great question. In fact, uh, the word reconciliation has been used for so many different agendas now and so many different purposes. It's hard to describe one singular definition of it. Uh, but I've always stuck with the idea of saying, you know, if we can bring the two societies back together, which is the definition of reconciliation, but also put a priority on making sure that Aboriginal people get out of poverty. They stop going to prison, get them out of prison, stop our Aboriginal kids from going into government care, stop substance abuse, stop suicides. That's something I learned about uh, 20 years ago that was plaguing First Nations across Canada, and it's what I committed to resolving. 
You know, Ellis, and I'll just wear my heart on my sleeve here. I've been trying to sift through just countless stories of of anguish and pain from this entire demographic within our community. I've been trying to find the positives to push the narrative forward, to talk about this next generation. But as I do that, and there are many positives, make no mistake about it. But one of the things that I keep coming back to is this generation of kids that had to raise their parents. So if I can take you back in time, maybe, you know, 40, 50 years Let's talk a little bit about those residential schools and the fact that these children uh, that suffered for so many years in these schools ended up getting raised by their children, which to me is, is, is something that is just so jarring. There was a certain element of that, of course, but uh, you also have uh, another segment of that population that came out and actually refused to give up. Uh, my parents, for example, both went to residential school. And they came out and they said, okay, we're going to start a family. We're going to get jobs. We're going to be part of the community. And we're going to raise kids that are self-determining, independent, and strong thinkers. And they're going to be join the workforce as well. So it, it, it's hard to generalize what really happened during those days. Uh, but, but it's actually quite significant that Canada has started to realize that, hey, we've got to fix this. We've got to help the Aboriginal people determine their own destiny and that's probably the one positive thing that I like seeing happening because that's what I've been working on for the last 20 years is trying to get First Nations to be independent and self-determining. Ellis, what is what is the thought process when it comes to an Indigenous you know youth right now? What do they think society thinks of them? Uh, you know what, when this all came out, when the word reconciliation came out, it actually came out in a court case in 2004, the Haida court case. And after a few years, uh, I realized the word reconciliation was being used for all different purposes. Mm-hmm. So I put together a booklet to describe all the high-level things that happened through provincial policy and federal policy to First Nations. And why I did it was to educate the population of B.C. and Canada, but I also did it to tell the youth and saying, you've got to understand your past and it's up to you to build a future so that your ancestors didn't suffer for nothing. And what, what I discovered was that there was, even amongst myself, my generation, there was a huge level of ignorance in terms of what residential school is all about, what the Indian Act was all about. And so I, I set out to actually educate everybody, including Aboriginals, and that, that education has to be ongoing so it's but ultimately what i told my people i said look if the generation of today doesn't understand uh, the issues that we're trying to deal with today then we've done our job we did it because if they're still battling the issues that we're battling today poverty and prison and suicide then we haven't really advanced much so yes i agree education in the past is great but you've got to address the issues and so I, I think a lot of the youth of today are starting to understand the connection between them and the past. You know, obviously you're, you're deep within your efforts within the First Nation, but you've also got an MLA tag with BC United. Do you feel that that's a blessing and a curse? Like, you know, sometimes political figures, obviously there's a stigma attached with them that they're politicians, but yet if your heart's in the right place, you can truly make change. How do you feel that as a member of BC United, you're, you're I guess, represented and, and appreciated by your community? Well, one of the reasons I joined the BC Liberals at the time, uh, number one, is because I wanted to help them get LNG off the, off the ground. But I also joined them because in 2004, 
the BC Liberals made a concerted effort to actually work with First Nations across BC. And they signed over 450 agreements. And this is what people forget. Uh, within the legislative powers, they did everything they could to partner with First Nations in resource development projects, language projects, culture projects, environmental projects. And that's why I joined them, because I thought this is a great seed of reconciliation. And it, it puts First Nations on a path where they can actually achieve their dreams. But ultimately, there, there's two things I, I don't appreciate in the BC legislature. I don't appreciate uh, using Aboriginal issues for politics. And the other thing is, I, no matter what the setting is, legislature or outside, I, I just can't bring myself to be part of a residential school ceremony. I just can't do it. It's just mm. it's too heartbreaking. It's too much pain. If I can just steal one more question from you, I know I'm against the clock and I'd love to carry on this conversation for far longer than they're going to let me here. But when you say that you can't go to this ceremony, is it the structure or is it just the spirit with the surrounding area around the school that makes it really hard for you to go? What what hurts you the most? Well, in 2003, I was a brand new counselor for my council and I started to research uh, everything that had been done to my band. And I understood then Everything that happened to my band actually happened to every band across Canada. And it wasn't just residential schools. It was putting us on reserve. It was telling us not to leave the reserve uh, without permission. It was banning our uh, potlatches. It was getting us to burn all our regalia and all our carvings. It was to condemn our language. There was a whole suite of issues. I put out a pamphlet on this in partnership with Reconciliation Canada. And in those days, uh, when when I realized this, because I researched the archives, I went through a whole range of emotions that ended off with anger and revenge. And I was, I was out to destroy everything that was <laughs> happening in our territory. But then after like a week later, I started to understand. I said, anger is not going to do anybody any good. Hatred is not going to do anybody good. I've got to start thinking about how do I get my people to a better place and how do I make the region stronger? But I'll never forget that realization after all that research about why First Nations were the way they were. I'll never forget that. And it just, every time something brings me back that, I just can't be a part of that. I did, I really focus on building something positive for the future. Because if I get caught up in the past, I, I get in a really dark spot. And I'm at that point when I'm at that dark spot, I'm no good to anybody. Mm. You know, I think of the Indigenous poem Monster, which uh, is such a beautiful poem. And halfway through the story, after all of the pain that he had felt, that he went back to the school many years later and actually forgave the school, the structure itself. And it's just, to me, one of the most beautiful poems that I've ever come across. And just hearing your words and the passion within it just speak volumes. And I can't tell you how much I appreciate this conversation today. And uh, tomorrow, I look forward on fleshing this out more. Thank you for your time today. It really means a lot to me, Ellis, that you stopped by to share your story and your thoughts. Let's do it again. Sounds great. Thank you very much. All right. Well, Carolyn Hilton is the CEO and founder of uh, a, something that I think is really cool and, and really interesting to me, Indigenomics. And uh, it's something that I didn't know much about, and I would love to get more on it. So, Carolyn, good afternoon, good morning, good evening, wherever I find you today. Good afternoon. I'm in Toronto currently, but uh, <laughs> I'm in based in the region. Thank well, you. It's so funny because I saw 250, so I said, maybe it's the morning, but maybe she's in Toronto, maybe it's the <laughs> afternoon. So I just wanted to cover everything off. Carol Ann, let's get right to it. What is Indigenomics? 
Yes, absolutely. Thank you for having me. Indigenomics is modern Indigenous economic design. It's economics from an Indigenous worldview. It's the addressing the assumptions of everything that we've been told of what economy is, and it is also causing the crisis in terms of our own humanity, our own future, and our own ecological balance. It sounds it, it sounds complicated, but I'm assuming at the same time it's got a simple message. How did it even start? Yeah, absolutely. It started as a hashtag and has grown into an entire movement, both nationally and internationally. And it's really addressing our assumptions of what we think economy is, what we've been told economy is, and who's been absent in shaping that meaning. So it's the inclusion of Indigenous worldview and the revaluing of Indigenous perspectives of economy. Why is it important in your estimation, Carolyn? I think I know the answer, but I'd love to hear it from you. I love that. Yes, it's important because Canada was essentially built on the historical economic displacement of Indigenous people. The cultural displacement, the identity displacement, and the economic displacement were the formative policies around Indian residential schools, around the reserve systems, around the Indian Act itself, as well as the original formation of the RCMP. To realize that the essential components of Indigenous worldview has been absent in the formation of Canada, that's really what Truth and Reconciliation is about from the economic perspective, is revaluing our Indigenous relationship. I love it. Caroline Hilton, CEO and founder of Indigenomics Institute, a global center of Indigenomics. I don't know if you could fit that all on one business card, but let's get into some of the key business opportunities. I think this is something, if we're going to have an Indigenous economy, what are some of those key business opportunities? Yeah, absolutely. I think the key opportunities are understanding the growth of Indigenous entrepreneurship. Indigenous businesses, it has been estimated, is growing at five times the national rate of self-employment. And the realization of that intersection between the capital requirements, the growth of the Indigenous economy and businesses is a strategic opportunity. You know, reconciliation gets talked about a lot, and uh, it seems that no matter the guest, everybody's got their own definition of reconciliation. How would you define economic reconciliation? Yeah, economic reconciliation is the foundation for building an inclusive economy that addresses our historical path as a country. Um, Economic reconciliation is the process of creating and facilitating meaningful partnerships and mutually beneficial opportunities to support Indigenous economic prosperity, inclusion and well-being. How would you know when it's achieved? I mean, I guess that's kind of a broad stroke question to ask, but when will you see the markers in place to make you say, you know what, we're on the right track here? Um, My work at the Indigenomics Institute is facilitating the narrative um, and formative meaning of a $100 billion national Indigenous economy. Indigenous economic growth and design, increasing Indigenous businesses, increasing access to capital, engagement of the financial sector, engagement of procurement as a tool across um, small, medium enterprises and corporations within this country, Those are all clear indicators. And finally, I would say the uptake of corporate Indigenous economic reconciliation action plans, the ability to shape clear accountability of results in creating Indigenous economic outcomes. When you um, put this forward to people, Carol Ann, what is the 
I guess, feedback you're getting from within the community? Do you feel like there's a spark in people's eyes that, you know, this is long overdue? What is what is the emotion that you feel when you trot this out to people and people give you a positive response? We've only had positive responses. I think the concept is really based in a positive, constructive pathway forward and engaging our leadership, engaging our learning spectrum as individuals, as families within the boardrooms and offices. It's about advancing our learning, advancing our understanding and advancing our outcomes. When they're looking at the outcomes wanted, when you're looking at the outcomes a lot, you know, are always focused on high-level things. Is there anything that the average person can do to support this? Absolutely. I think there's groups like Shop First Nations that are building this critical mass of Indigenous businesses. So when companies are looking at gifting programs or kind of swag and these concepts of what are ways to engage and um, build participation of Indigenous businesses. There's this growing movement of support for Indigenous businesses, whether that's restaurants, food products, travel, transportation. There's so many different areas. I think the engagement of Indigenous business is essential to that. Where can people learn about this? I'm intrigued by it, but I think I want to make, maybe there's a website or a way that we can connect so that we can uh, advance the story. Yeah, there's a couple. Um, our Indigenomicsinstitute.com, as well as the Shop First Nations, are great starts. Thank you for this. This was a pleasure to have this conversation, and thank you for everything you're doing. I, I know sometimes there's a lot of labor of love in this, but the fact that you're pushing this narrative, I think, is going to help a whole generation and beyond. So, Caroline, I think your heart's in the right place, and keep going. Thank you so much. I love these kind of topics. We're talking about landscapers, and uh, I want to take an excerpt from a story. Uh, Before we bring on our guest, uh, we're going to be talking about landscaping. Simone List, just seconds away, she's the president and CEO of the BBB, serving mainland BC and Yukon. But before we get to her, I just want to give you a real quick example of what we're talking about. There's a woman in Delta in her late 60s, hired a landscaping company to remove her concrete patio due to cracking and lifting. And this happened back in October of 2022. Now, the initial quote was a $250 deposit to simply start the work. However, a couple of weeks after jackhammering had begun, the landscaper then claimed that more work was needed and didn't even provide visible proof and offered a new estimate that included potential drain tile replacement. Well, guess what? The estimate skyrocketed up to nearly $5,000. Now, the Delta woman agreed to it, with the condition that some work would be pushed into early 2023 because of her budget. Now, concerns arose when the Delta landscaper rented an excavator and, you know, causing potential damage to the woman's yard, the sprinkler system, instead of following the manual work described in the initial quote. So shortly after the landscaper attempt to use the machine but failed, leading him to revert to manual labor as originally quoted, finally the Delta woman found a second opinion. She found some reputable contractors who collectively agreed that heavy machinery was absolutely unnecessary. Now, the woman from Delta canceled the contract, but she was left with the short end of the stick, asking the landscaper to pay her a refund of $3,400, and some of the work had been completed already. Landscaper only offered her a refund of $1,900, and that left the Delta woman without any recourse. So, I know not all landscapers are bad, but there are definitely pitfalls out there, so let's bring on Simone Lish. She's the president and CEO of the BBC, serving mainland BC and Yukon. Simone, good morning. 
Good morning. How are you? Well, you know, I, I'm I'm of two thoughts because I know there's a lot of good landscapers out there that do hard work and sometimes they'll even work with their clients on payment plans. But, you know, there are some pitfalls. So let's get into this, Simone. Uh, how do you work with a trustworthy business? Well, I think there's a number of factors. I mean, uh, you know, situations like this can happen with, with any business. I mean, you hire someone, you have your contract, and then additional work is needed. Uh, you know, at that point, what we would suggest sometimes is, is to reach out and get some additional um, feedback, get some experts in there and, and, and make sure that you're comfortable with the work that's proceeding. Um, a lot of the information and advice that we tend to give is to make sure that before you hire someone, you know who you're dealing with, uh, that you are um, checking them out. You're coming to the BBB looking for the, the sign of the better business Bureau seal, which shows that uh, if a company displays that sign, that they are committed to our standards, that they are advertising honestly, that they'll be responsive to concerns. Um, and those businesses are vetted by the BBB annually. So those are the kind of things that we, we would encourage consumers to do. Um, when dealing with any company, we always encourage a, a consumer to, to get quotes, to get you know three, so that you can um, look at those quotes and, and understand what's being covered. Um, and those details, of course, matter. I mean, you, you really do want to be able to compare uh, apples to apples. Um, so, for example, in, in landscaping, um, make sure you're writing down the types of materials that they're going to be using um, so that, you know, if there are some discrepancies, that gives you a, a complication starter for you. You know, I had a conversation when I saw that we were going to be um, talking about this today, Simone. I made a couple of phone calls and I remembered uh, a person close to me that had a similar situation. And she said one of the real pressures that she felt was the contractor coming in, talking about the immediacy of the repair work and how if she didn't start it now, that there was going to be a bill fivefold down the road. And and sometimes it can be sold as, you know, it has to be done right now. I'm the only guy to do this. Go, 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 go. But from a consumer's perspective, you do have more options and perhaps that contractor is letting on. Well, absolutely. I mean, here's the thing. If you are feeling that kind of pressure, walk away. I mean, you need to deal with someone that you can trust. Um, I had a great conversation with an accredited business who was coming um, because they, you know, we were recognizing businesses that have been accredited for a long period of time. And their conversation with me was that they sit down with their clients because it's not about, it's not about them um, or the consumer, it's a we, right? They're a team, and together that team is going to come up with an approach. That's the kind of company that you want working with you on your um, your needs. Um, so if you are feeling that kind of pressure, I would say walk away. We have a great tool on our website that allows you to get a quote from any business, um, and that should help simplify you know the time that you're taking to reach out to different businesses. Simone Liss is the president and CEO of the Better Business Bureau, serving both the mainland BC and Yukon. Simone, what are one of the biggest misconceptions when it comes to, um, you know, being approved by the BBB or not being approved? A lot of people just assume that the BBB is is out there to make money and, and try to drive business to certain businesses. I know there's a lot of misconceptions out there. What's one that you come across often? Well, I think there's a perception that every business is uh, can be accredited and you do have to meet standards um, we have to turn businesses away who aren't committed to our standards and um, you know one of the things that that we do is uh, we do try to work with businesses we do try to work with consumers so we're not really advocating for either side 
Uh, so if someone does file a complaint with us, we, we, we are trying to work with both parties. And, and that can be challenging um, because, you know, from a consumer perspective, you want someone on, you know, fighting for your fight. And from a business perspective, you want someone fighting for your side. Um, but that's not really what we do. We, we sort of work as an intermediary to try to bring the two parties together um, through this sort of dispute resolution process. And then ultimately, we provide that information on our website so people can come and look. Um, businesses that are BBB accredited make that commitment to be responsive to complaints and, and to provide a, a response that's professional and addresses the issues. If they don't, then then we have a process. And unfortunately, for example, so far this year, we've had to uh, revoke five businesses and that information because becomes public as well. Oh, that's interesting. I wasn't aware of that. Simone, thank you for this. Just shining light on this and some of the do's and don'ts when it comes to landscaping and beyond when it comes to, you know, to be honest with you, all business here. It's great to just know that there's a partner like the BBC out there, or BBB, pardon me, out there to uh, at least guide people back towards the path. Let's do this again. Simone, thank you for your time today. Thank you. Um, and please encourage people to come to BBB.org. There's lots of information there. It, you know, regardless of whether you deal with an accredited or not accredited business, we do provide information on businesses. Um, And there's lots of tips there to help you make your best choice, your best decision. Thanks for listening to the Mike Smith Show podcast. Can't wait for the latest episode to drop. Tune into the show live from 9 to noon on 980 CKNW. Want to reach out to me personally with a question or comment? Send me an email, mike at cknw.com. Thanks again for listening.